Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused economic catastrophe on a scale not seen for decades. So, why are the prices of goods such as copper, iron ore and soybeans surging? And can commodities keep climbing? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, and coming up on today's show... Two weeks in, what does the 11th hour Brexit trade deal mean in practice for businesses on both sides of the channel? And is it possible to count the economic cost of COVID-19? Perhaps not, but we have a go anyway. But first, in 2020, the biggest commodity price story was one of decline. As the pandemic halted travel, oil prices fell off a cliff, then briefly went subterranean. In April, a futures contract for West Texas Intermediate was worth less than nothing. But for other commodities, 2020 was not all bad. In the past week, soybeans have hit a six-year high. The price of a tonne of copper exceeded $8,000 for the first time since early 2013. And iron ore is threatening to match a record price not approached for a decade. Could this be the start of an extraordinary ascent? Well, the big commodity story in 2020 was this enormous implosion in oil prices. Charlotte Howard is our energy and commodities editor. But if you look at other commodities, it was actually a pretty remarkable rally for an asset class that had been out of favour for a long time. Charlotte, we're now at the start of 2021 and we're still in the midst of a pandemic which has caused an enormous global slump. So it may seem puzzling that commodity prices are now soaring. What's behind the rally? If you look at something like iron ore, you had a combination of pretty healthy buying, in particular from China, with supply constraints. So there were some big mines in Brazil that closed due to COVID-related shutdowns. Or if you look at soybeans, for example, you had some idiosyncratic factors like the African swine fever, which had decimated hog herds, and then uh, people were keen to rebuild hog herds, so that raised demand for feed. That coincided with longer-term strategic stockpiling of grain by China, as well as uh, dry weather in South America that has harmed planting in Brazil, in Argentina, um, and those things conspired to lift prices. So you saw this sort of stockpiling in particular in Asia, but also in other parts of the world, combined with some supply constraints that helped push prices up. And are these forces likely to continue this year? There are some signs that they will, and that also there are other factors that will help to boost demand even further. So you've seen continued concern about about food supply. So Argentina had put in place a total ban on corn exports. It recently lifted the ban, but there still is a cap Russia is going to introduce a tax on wheat exports beginning in February. And then combined with that, you have, of course, a lot of optimism 
about the rollout of vaccines and what that will mean for a pickup, particularly for oil, it's important as you think about a resumption in travel and trade. There is a big possibility now that we have Democrats controlling not just Congress and the White House, but also the Senate, that you'll get a bigger spending bill than Republicans had been willing to pass, and that could stimulate economic activity. So there are a few big, big factors that could continue to push prices up this year. I know you've been speaking to analysts at Goldman Sachs, and I understand that they've been predicting a commodity super cycle. Now, what does that mean? And are they right? (laughs) Um, If I could tell you for sure whether they'd be right, I would quit my job and um, be placing all kinds of big bets on the commodities market. But there's this really interesting debate underway. But whether you actually have a longer term set of structural factors that will continue to push commodities up over the coming decade. What's kind of unusual is the possibility of a synchronous Uh, array of activities across the world's biggest economies. The governments, at least in what they say, have a few priorities. These include green investment, which is very commodity intensive. You think about building wind farms, um, building all kinds of new infrastructure, electric charging stations. These are things that rely on copper, on steel, on cobalt. There's also a lot of attention in what uh, governments are saying about income inequality and trying to help lower income households. And if you see a pickup in buying by lower income households, there's a much bigger impact on commodity markets. One of the things that I actually found most interesting about their analysis is that in the early stages of a green stimulus, you could actually see an uptick in oil demand also, just from the additional economic activity. So eventually it harms oil demand, but in the shorter term, it actually could provide a bump. So a lot depends on how much governments spend on recovery, when they spend it, and what they spend it on. But on the other side of the ledger, what potential risks could undermine the commodities boom? One question is whether uh, there's already so much enthusiasm about commodities that some commodities have become a bit overheated. So there's a lot of speculation in copper, for instance, particularly in anticipation of restrictions on copper supply that haven't quite materialized. And then, you know, there are people who say there was a big super cycle in the beginning of the millennium. Huge investment in middle-income countries as these countries urbanized, more people moved to city. There was a lot of construction. There was an ascendant middle class. This helped really boost commodity prices in the early 2000s. And the question now is whether something similar could happen. You have some analysts who think yes, and perhaps even this commodity boom could surpass that that we saw at the beginning of the 21st century. But there is also the risk that governments don't do what they say they will. And this doesn't quite materialize the way the bulls would hope. And when commodity prices start to rise sharply, the question always comes up of whether inflation is going to increase as well. So is this commodity price surge something that central banks should be concerned about? Not yet. And that's in part because commodity prices had fallen so steeply over the past decade. Inflation remains really low. At the moment, it seems more likely that you'd see reflation, so kind of inflation returning a bit more to normal levels. There is legitimate concern about food prices, particularly in some developing countries in the shorter term, whether you might have supply bottlenecks that push food prices up. But over the longer term, through the mid-2020s, if you do see some increase in in inflation, I don't think it would be of a scale that would be deeply worrisome. You could have central banks do various things 
to help manage it. And also it would be sort of promising. It would be a sign if, if you have rising prices, in particular, if they're driven by the factors that the analysts at Goldman think might drive it, i.e. governments getting serious about dealing with climate change, trying to find ways to have growth that's inclusive of the lower end of the income distribution, that that could mean that, you know, the world's getting its act together and dealing with some of its biggest problems. So you would have the creation of one smallish problem that would be manageable, I think, in the name of dealing with two much bigger ones. Charlotte, thank you very much. Thank you. For more analysis like this, go to economist.com. This week, among many other things, you'll find a look at the consequences of the New York Stock Exchange's delisting of three Chinese telecoms giants in response to an executive order by President Trump, and why energy companies are turning up their noses at investing in the Arctic. If you're not yet a subscriber, there's a special introductory offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the notes for this episode. Next, in the final days of 2020, Britain and the European Union achieved what, to many, had seemed impossible. We have finally found an agreement. We have completed the biggest trade deal yet. Mission accomplished. The EU-UK Trade and Cooperation Agreement, or TCA, came into provisional force at 11pm London time on December 31st. But the deal was struck in a rush. Many companies on both sides of the channel had mere days to understand the details of how the changes would apply to them. The biggest challenge we faced is there wasn't any time to test the new system to export salmon from the UK into the European marketplace. Tavish Scott is chief executive of the Scottish Salmon Producers Organisation. Its members produce more than 200,000 tonnes of farmed fish each year. Of that, around 100 tonnes a day goes to the EU. There has been huge problems for our member companies and for the logistics system. That has been bedeviled in the last 12 days by UK and French custom systems not operating as we were told they would work. Our member companies have faced losses. They've also lost contracts. And all of this is because of the shambles that has been the IT and paperwork system for export from the UK into the European marketplace. It was only yesterday, on Monday, January the 11th, that European parliamentary committees began to scrutinise the deal's details, ahead of a vote to ratify it formally. So, how will Britain's parting agreement with the EU reshape business and Britain's economy? John Peat is our political and Brexit editor. Hello, good to be here. And Duncan Weldon is our Britain economics correspondent. Hi, thanks for having me on. John, can I start with you? Get Brexit done has been a mantra of Boris Johnson's ever since he became Prime Minister about 18 months ago. Is it at last done? Well, it is done in the sense that Britain has left the European Union and now it's left the single market and the customs union. It's not done in the sense that Britain will still spend many months, possibly years, in negotiation with the European Union as its biggest trade partner. Duncan, the agreement may change over time, but we do have a new agreement. In the weeks and months that led up to it, there was lots of worry and doom-mongering about queues of lorries in Kent at the, at the border at the Channel Ports. How has it actually been working out in practice? Well, you know, much of what you call the doom-mongering was focused on the possibility of a no-deal exit. What we have is a, a trade deal, a thin one, but a trade deal. And, you know, the first couple of weeks, if you just look at that um, Dover-Calais border, 
things appear to be running relatively smoothly. We don't have those very telegenic pictures of queues of trucks, but, and this is quite a big but I'm afraid, when you speak to the haulage firms and the hauliers, they say what we've seen is very low volumes compared to normal through that Dover-Calais route, partially because firms stockpiled throughout December, ahead of the um, end of the transition period, and partially because you know, people just want to give it time to see how it's working before they send their goods through that route, unless they absolutely have to. And there's certainly a lot of reports that on the French side of the border, the French have been going sort of very light hand in terms of enforcing the new regulations. They've been warning they're going to step up enforcement, and the government has warned British business to expect delays in the coming weeks. So quite a smooth start, but that might not last. And John, one of the major sources of confusion for many businesses that we've seen has been over rules of origin, which are familiar to people who spend their time poring over trade agreements, but aren't to most people. Can you explain why these have become a particular concern? What we have with the European Union is a free trade deal that promises no tariffs and no quotas on goods trade. And that sounds like, all right, all goods will be free of tariffs and quotas. But it isn't quite as simple as that. And what are called rules of origin apply to all free trade agreements. You have to demonstrate you're not just importing you know, goods from China or Japan and then re-exporting them uh, and acting as a sort of backdoor into the single market, but actually that, that your good is substantially made in Britain. And a number of companies have only just woken up to this rules of origin problem. There is also a wrinkle that it causes problems exporting to Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland will continue to be in the European Union's customs union as part of the agreement, whereas Great Britain is not. And some supermarkets are finding that, that unexpectedly they find that they fall foul of rules of origin. They can't demonstrate that the goods they're, they're sending across to Northern Ireland actually originate here. It seems that we've got a couple of types of problems One to do with the increase of volume, which has been artificially low, as you said, for the first couple of weeks. The others related to more technical issues in the rules themselves. Are these things that you expect will be largely ironed out in the coming weeks or are they signs of really more fundamental difficulties? You know, as you say, I think it depends on the kind of problem. So, you know, if we do see truck queues on the Dover-Calais route, that is the sort of teething problem which can eventually be ironed out once people get used to the idea of what sort of customs paperwork they need. You know, people get more used to processing it. And it may be that traffic permanently flows through that border at a slower pace, but, you know, firms can adjust to that. But there are some more fundamental challenges. So, you know, what John was saying there about rules of origin... You know, that is potentially a, a lasting thing. If you're running a business in Britain at the moment, you will probably learn to deal with that. But if I was thinking about setting up an online retailer in Britain that wanted to sell across the European Union today, I might think rather than setting that up in Britain, actually, it's going to be a lot less hassle to set that up in Dublin. I was struck by something that Tavish Scott of the Scottish Salmon Producers said when he spoke to us earlier today. What we could do with, along with all of our colleagues in the seafood industry across the UK, is a much lighter touch in terms of the regulation and the paperwork that's placed upon us for the, exactly the same product. And that's where we need the French and United Kingdom governments to get together and work out a simpler and better system of, of trade, which would be mutually advantageous. Will the sorting out of the more technical problems require renegotiation and in some way concessions from the EU? Or can Britain work out some of these problems with individual countries? 
I think some of these may be susceptible of another, if you like, round of talks with the European Union to see if ways can be found to simplify procedures. They're already allowing a certain amount of leeway in some areas and they're softening some of the controls. But the fundamental problem is that now that Great Britain is not in a customs union and not in the single market, but instead in a free trade relationship, there will be, uh, inevitably, barriers to trade. They won't, on the whole, be tariffs, but there will certainly be non-tariff barriers, lots of paperwork and red tape. And I don't think you can escape that by having another round of negotiation, nor indeed do I think the European Union will be terribly interested in making life for the UK easier. But what about Britain's promised, or you could say much ballyhooed, ability to deregulate and diverge from European Union rules and and regulations. Could Britain gain a benefit from that, irrespective of of any further discussion or renegotiation with the European Union? Uh, It is possible you could have in certain areas smarter forms of regulation than the European Union. It is also possible that you might have the chance to strike free trade deals with with big third parties like the United States or even, even China and India. But it looks to me as if any of those benefits are quite a long way off and they're rather uncertain. And Duncan, you've been looking specifically at this big question that that John just alluded to about the long term impact on the British economy. So what conclusions have you reached? Well, I think, you know, given that we've exited the EU with a deal, then much of the damage comes almost as a whimper rather than a bang. We don't take this immediate short term hit to our economy. But we get what Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, has called grit in the mechanism. British firms in the future will find it harder to export to Europe. British consumers will find it marginally harder to import goods from Europe. Our economy will become, at least in the short term, a bit less trade intense. And all of the economic evidence suggests that over the longer run, this is a drag on your productivity. So the rough consensus out there, if you look at the Office of Budget Responsibility, the government's own forecaster, or what the Bank of England says, or what independent economists are saying, is that in 10 or 15 years' time, our economy will be some three, four, five percentage points smaller than it otherwise would have been. For a long time, when people have looked at the British economy, they've been very concerned about the slow rate of productivity growth. From what you're saying, it suggests that leaving the EU is not going to do anything to help solve that problem or to or to keep it at bay. Yeah, I mean, the last few weeks, you know, a lot of the economic discussion has focused on the so-called British strain of COVID. But, you know, I think the longer term risk is the return of what was called the British disease in the post-war years. In the 1950s, 60s, 70s, Britain underwent a relative economic decline relative to the other large developed Western European economies. You know, by the late 1960s, income per head was higher in France, higher in Germany, higher in Italy than in Britain. And the fundamental driver of what people called the British disease was a lack of competition, an economy which was sort of insulated from international competitive pressure and where domestic industry had often been cartelized or even nationalized in the 1920s, 30s and 40s. You know, Margaret Thatcher's governments in the 1980s often get a lot of the praise for curing the British economic disease. But Margaret Thatcher was moving with a wider stream of increased competitive pressure after Britain joined the then EEC in 1973. You know, this is quite basic, you know, trade is good for your productivity. Trade is good for your long-term growth. 
and anything which makes your economy less trade intensive tends to be bad for your long-term growth prospects. Duncan Weldon and John Pete, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. And finally, wave after wave of COVID-19 has closed borders, cost jobs, and shuttered businesses. Almost a year in, the global economic toll of the pandemic is devastating. It's incalculable, really. But let's try anyway. I've got an absolutely enormous envelope here, and I'm armed with a well-sharpened pencil to do some very large, very rough calculations on the back of it. And here to help me is Simon Cox, The Economist's Emerging Markets Editor. Hello. Now, calculating the cost of COVID-19 sounds an impossible task. And of course, it's not possible to do it precisely. But I suppose that economists are, in fact, duty bound to try. So where should they start? Yeah, so economists like doing this sort of thing. And I should point out that we're here talking about the economic cost of COVID, not the human cost. The human cost, of course, is even less calculable And what you need to do that is some sense of how the world would have been without COVID. You need some kind of counterfactual, a baseline from which to judge the damage. And so in a piece this week, I've used the baseline provided by the World Bank in its uh, Global Economic Prospects report, which conveniently came out uh, just a few days ago. That report says that the world economy probably shrank by over 4% in 2020. And uh, 4% doesn't sound that very much, but that's a contraction on a par with the Great Depression, with world wars, it's really unheard of. But even that is really an underestimate because that tells you how far the economy has shrunk from where it was in 2019. But it doesn't tell you how far it's fallen from where it would have been in 2020 if the pandemic had never happened. And how do you estimate that counterfactual? It's quite convenient to look at the World Bank's report from a year ago, uh, which released in January 2020, when the pandemic was really not in the headlines, very few reports about it at all. And so they calculated what the world economy would be doing without really taking into account any pandemic threat. And they thought, you know, the world economy would grow by about two and a half percent. So compared with that counterfactual, compared with that baseline, uh, the fall isn't about four percent, it's well over six percent. Now, if you want to convert that into dollars and cents, that's an awfully big figure. It's well over five trillion dollars of goods and services that we didn't make, that we could have made if the pandemic hadn't hit us. Now, how much is growth in 2021 likely to offset the damage? Because there's going to be some bounce back. The world economy will grow unusually quickly in 2021, but it won't uh, make up for the shortfall. It'll still be over 5% below a pre-pandemic travel path, if you like. And so that adds another $4.7 trillion to the cost. And to clarify, this is GDP forgone. So these are goods and services that weren't produced or won't be produced because of the pandemic's effect, because of its damage to investment, its damage to employment. Now, if you add those two numbers together, so you know the earlier number I gave you was 
5.6 trillion for 2020, add 4.7 trillion for 2021, and that's over 10 trillion dollars just in two years. 10 trillion dollars, it's obviously an enormous number, too enormous to grasp without some sort of context. So can you put that into some sort of perspective? Yeah, so there are only two economies in the world, uh, America and China, that produce more than that in a year. And in fact, there are 153 economies that between them produce less than that in a year. 10 trillion or 10.3 trillion, which is the more spuriously precise estimate, it's enough to buy you know, the 10 biggest listed companies in the world. You could buy Google, Microsoft, Apple, uh, Amazon, you could buy Tencent and Alibaba and Saudi Aramco thrown in and even Tesla. OK, so that's the total amount. What about the spread? Who's hurting the most? Probably the way um, I would put it is, you know, the biggest economies clearly going to have the biggest GDP shortfalls just by virtue of their size. But there are some wrinkles, some complications to that. For example, the euro area has a bigger cost than America, even though the euro area is a smaller economy than America. And that's because the contraction in the euro area was worse than it was in America. Uh, similarly, China has a much bigger economy than India, but the losses in India will be greater, again, because India handled the pandemic less well and suffered a more grievous uh, shortfall in GDP. Is it possible to look further ahead and predict the extent of how bad that lasting damage might be? Of course, the further out you look, the less reliable this sort of counterfactual projection is. But the World Bank, you know, for its part, says that even in 2022, global GDP will be over 4% below the pre-pandemic projection. So that's an awful lot of money to add to the toll. Investment um, will be subdued. There's this sort of lasting uncertainty. Of course, there's been a massive interruption in education and training. So there'll be some damage to the sort of stock of skills in the world economy that could last. And there's also the problems of, of lingering debt. Those debt burdens could potentially uh, weigh, especially on some of the poorer economies that have had to borrow in foreign currencies. It's not just about the size of the number. It's that the, the nature of the world economy itself has, has changed. So how can you help us get a, a grip on that? So there's a paradox here. Just about the most valuable economic endeavours that the world is undertaking right now are things like mask production and vaccine research and vaccine production and distribution. But in this alternative universe, I'm imagining, in which the pandemic never happens, we don't need to do any of that. So even though these are the most valuable things we're doing right now, they also count as a cost and a lingering one at that. Simon Cox, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes all the difference. I'm Patrick Lane. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.